0: Service. She uh, she said it was great here. Let me warn you. I I got some allergies going on, and my my voice just goes in and out. And so uh, I'm I'm not in any pain. You might be from having to listen to it. <laughs> Fortunately, we can be mic up mic'd up, and I won't have to yell at you. I'm not much of a yeller anyway. So. Uh, turn to Psalm 6, if you will. I told you before, I'm, I'm, I'm not going all the way through all the psalms, but I have been looking at uh, some psalms. A lot of what I've been looking at are psalms that are called lament psalms. They're, they're songs, psalms, but they're songs that were written for people that are suffering. And this is a suffering psalm. And the reason I'm doing it is Honestly, our church is in that place, uh, and this psalm in particular, along with some of the others we've looked at, we, we see how to respond to this suffering, and particularly tonight, we're going to look at how do you pray when, well, as he's going to say, he, he goes to bed, and he doesn't sleep, he just cries. He stays up all night, and he says, I wake up, and my bed is soaking wet with tears, because life is hard right now. Uh, he, he says, in the morning, it, 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 it's like depression has set in for me. He says, I don't, I don't even get up and go about my day. I lay on my couch and cry all day. My couch is wet with tears. What do you do when you're there? The, this morning, like I told you, I was at Kyler Baptist, and I had to ask them, have any of you been there? I don't have to ask y'all. I know, I know we're there. Right? Not only are some of you say, "I feel there right now, um, and many in our church are there that we're there as a body, right? This is something that we're walking through as a body, whether it be because of illness, cancer, Myatheisis um, gravis gets us there, doesn't it? Not us, but us as a body we're there with you, Robert. Um, gravis, not. Gra- I looked up the pronunciation, and I still didn't get it exactly right. Um, you know, it wasn't long ago we asked for prayer for families that are broken, children that are wayward, wrestling with fear and anxiety and worry. We're in broken places. And so how do you, how do you pray when you can't even sleep at night because of the suffering's so great in your soul? That's what Psalm 6 is about. Let's, uh... Stand and read it together. That's a, a tradition we've had at this church for a while, and I don't usually do it, but I should. I like that in honor of God's word. And you know what? You have to stand for just a second longer. I was in Proverbs 6. We want to read Psalm 6. Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the sheminists, It's a psalm of David, and David writes, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We admit that uh, we're we're here with David. Some of of us individually are right in the throes of this. All of us as a church, one body, are walking through this together. So I pray that, A, you will teach us to fight this together. Uh, Particularly as we look at David's prayer, teach us to pray together the way David prayed so that we can experience David's experience, that we can have this same sense of though we walk through this suffering, we know that you will hear our prayer. And so that's what we ask tonight. Be with my voice as I speak. Allow it not to be a distraction from your word, which can give us life tonight. I pray that in your name. Amen. All right. You can be seated. I, I know that I say this often, the superscript is part of the Bible text, right? The, there's a title in your Bible, probably. Um, my Bible, I'm reading out of the ESV, my title, the ESV titles it Oh Lord, Deliver My Life. Your Bible might not even title it. That part's not the Hebrew Bible originally written. That's just my translators helping me find the passage quickly. But the superscript is that capitalized part that reads something like, To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, it's a Psalm of David. All of our Bibles should read something like that. And I just want to point out a couple things real quick. Uh, one is this is not a very detailed superscript, right? Earlier, we looked at Psalm 3, and it tells us about him, the setting. He's running from Asaph. You get something like that in Psalm 51 after he had gone into Bathsheba. Here, we don't know the context. I don't know what's going on in David's life that's causing this. But I do know it's David. He wrote it. I do know that these First notes are for the choir master's benefit. Choir master is a song leader, a music leader. And just want the song leader to know a couple things. First is this this song is to be played along, to be accompanied with stringed instruments. Um, If you have the King James, I think it says uh, with Neganoth, right? Uh, Neganoth just is a Hebrew word, which means stringed instruments. And to be honest, I don't know exactly why the King James... Translators decide to, this is what's called transliterate instead of translate. Transliterate is when you take a Hebrew word and you uh, put it into an English spelling so we can sound it out like it would sound. Uh, this, is, this is just the Hebrew word in English letters. If you have a modern Bible, it probably was translated into with stringed instruments. But all this means is that when the song was sung in Jewish, wor- Jewish worship, it was meant to be accompanied by a guitar, not like Eddie. Ooh, or turn off my phone. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> meant to play with a guitar, not not a six string, probably, but a lyre or a harp or a stringed instrument, whatever they played at the time. The next line says, "According to the Shimonith," and this line in probably most of our Bibles is another place where we have a translated word instead of a I mean a transliterated word instead of a translated word. The word literally means an eighth. Right? It's with an eighth or according to an eighth. Um, the reason it's transliterated here instead of translated is because we don't know exactly what he's talking about. Now if you have the New American standard I think they actually do translate this. You'll notice it says with an eight-string lyre, like an eight-string guitar, sort of a thing. Um, that's one possible implication. Hey, I want you to play it with stringed instruments, particularly an eight-stringed one. Uh, that's. It's, I think it's odd that the New American Translation, New American Standard, decided to translate instead of transliterate because that's not what most scholars think. Most think that this is related to our English word octave. There's eight notes. In an octave, right? And so that it kind of helps us to measure uh, pitch when we talk about let's take it up an octave or down an octave. Um, people, most scholars think this has something to do with the tone in which we're singing. Is it we're singing it low and mournfully? Um, this is a way to say this song, this song should not be peppy, <laughs> right? We're getting ready to sing a sad song, and you should play it in a sad way. Um, That's what most scholars think is going on here, but we don't know for sure, so we leave it untranslated. And I just think this is kind of neat. I just want to throw this in because it's neat. Spurgeon, I thought was really encouraging. He says, don't be upset that there's a couple words in the Old Testament that we don't know what they mean. In in Spurgeon's mind, there's a really exciting thing about that. Let me read, actually, what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, Some think, and he's talking about the shemineth, some think it refers to a bass or a tenor key, which would certainly be well adapted to this mournful ode. But we are not able to understand these old musical terms, and even the term selah remains untranslated. This, however, should be no difficulty in our way. We probably lose but very little by our ignorance. It may serve to confirm our faith. is proof of the high antiquity of these psalms. Uh, And let me pause. Antiquity just means this is proof that this is an old, old psalm, right? Uh, Because it contains words, the meaning of which is lost even to the best scholars of the Hebrew language. He said, surely these are but incidental. And then in parenthesis, he says, I would almost say accidental, except for I know there's no accidents with God. But he says this is like an incidental uh, proof of their being what they profess to be, the ancient writings of King David. In other words, he's saying, how cool that there are words in our Bible that are so old that we don't even know how to get back to them. He says that actually makes a lot of sense if it was written 3,500 years ago. If this was a forgery that was written hundreds years of, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, even 1,000 years ago, we, we could trace it back. But this is showing us this is as old as it claims to be. Right? This is, this, we're talking about some old writings here. It claims to be the writing of David. There's no reason to not believe that, considering that some of these Hebrew words are so old that even ancient Hebrew scholars say it's older than we can dig up. So that's a really cool thing. Now, add that on to the fact that God takes this old, old Hebrew and the only words that he's left kind of mysterious for us are words that seem to be incidental. Right? The exact pitch that this song was sung in does not in any way reflect on my ability to apply and understand and shape my life. Right? So God gave me the words that I need to know to get the meaning. He kept those. I can translate those. But the words that seemed to be incidental in the meaning, he said, let me just give you some evidence to remind you that you're reading something old here. And it just seems like that's just something God did for us. All right, what a cool thing. What a cool thing. And that is uh, just all about the superscript, but I really want to spend more time talking about the psalm itself. So let's, we're going to move into Psalm 1, but the, verse 1, but let me first just talk about the structure Psalm 6, I think, is easily broken into two parts, really split right down the middle. There's a first half and a second half. First half is verses 1 through 5, and in verses 1 through 5, the whole part of 1 through 5 is David's prayer. Everything he says in 1 through 5 is directed to God himself. Verses 6 through 7 is not a prayer, it's his experience. Right? So verses 1 through 5, we're going to watch, how does David pray in suffering? And we're going to read that and apply it as a model for us. Right? My goal tonight is that all of us, myself included, pray like David prays. In hopes that my experience will be like David's experience. Right? So I'm going to study, how do I pray? And then the second half, what do I get? What do I expect as the result of this kind of prayer? So let's, let's um, let me say one more thing before we dive into verse 1. If, if, if you could walk away with any one thing, any one thing, the main thing I want you to get is that this psalm teaches us to pray. And therefore, if you forget all the details, but you remember when I suffer, God is calling me to pray, then I think you're getting the bulk of what's going on here. This psalm is is saying, When you are suffering, God is begging you, draw near to me in prayer. When you are suffering, this is God's invitation to talk to him. Uh, There's a book, booklet, I meant to bring it with me. It's just, each point is half of a little page, it's about yay big. 11 points. It's written by John Piper when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And this was probably 10 years ago. And he wrote a little booklet called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Uh, One of those points that he makes is, he gives us 11 ways to waste it. And he says, one of the ways we waste our cancer, and this applies to all suffering, is if we don't use it to draw near to God. Uh, One of those points, he says, we waste our cancer if we spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough about reading about God. He says, It's not wrong to know about cancer. Ignorance is not a virtue. But the Lord to know more and more, and the lack of zeal to know God more and more, is symptomatic of unbelief. He says, Cancer is meant to waken us to the reality of God. It is meant to put feeling and force behind the command, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He ends that little section with this line. He says, what a waste if we read day and night about cancer and not about God. So that's what I want us to do. That's what I want this psalm to create in all of us is this knee-jerk reaction. When I suffer, I pray. That's my go-to. I want to learn about the things surrounding myself. If if I'm suffering financially, I want to learn to budget, but not first to budget. First, I want to go to the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If I'm suffering with cancer, I want to learn about cancer. But I don't want to first learn about cancer. I first want to turn to the God who created the cells in my body in the first place. Right? My first thing is prayer. So let's say we get that. How do I pray? What exactly do I pray about when it's so heavy on me, I can't even sleep at night for all my tears? Where do I start? Let's start in verse 1. David starts by saying, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. The first thing David does is he deals with God about his sin and the consequences of his sin. The first thing he does is he says, I recognize that sin brings wrath, but I'm asking that you not deal with me in your wrath But you deal with me instead based in your loving kindness as one who disciplines. Right? He's not asking here necessarily that there be no suffering. But what he wants is something that's a little different. Not just justice and wrath poured out. But I want the kind of suffering that is, um, the King James will use the word chastisement. Uh, We use the word discipline. It's the idea that God will bring suffering the same way a parent will bring suffering to create a better end. God, I want to know that you're using this for something. Not simply to smite me for what I deserve, but I want to know that you're going to use this suffering to create a more righteous, more holy, more sold-out follower of you through this suffering. Uh, Let me skip. I'm going to come forward and then come back here. I want to make sure we understand the difference here between discipline and just justice, judgment. The best passage I know about is in Hebrews 12. Why don't you just keep your finger here and flip to Hebrews 12. I'm going to read for you in verse 11 and 12, out of Hebrews 12, but starting in verse 11, whoever wrote Hebrews starts like this. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. right?" And, and that makes sense. Right? He says, nobody wants a spanking. Dorothy never says, I'm going to have a spanking today. It's painful. It's not what she wants. But later, Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We'll walk through a period that doesn't feel peaceful, but we know that if it's discipline, not judgment, if it's discipline, it's going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If we know it's discipline... He says, therefore, knowing that God is disciplining those he loves, knowing that discipline has a good end to it, therefore, in verse 12, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but be healed. I think that's what David's praying in verse 1 here. God, don't strike me in your anger. That is taking what is lame and knocking it out of joint. I want this suffering to work toward the end of my healing. Right? He's thinking of, I can think of perhaps a, a bone that was out of place, and maybe you have to re-break it to set it right. That's fine, but I don't want you to shatter all of my bones, break them and set them right. I want the long-term benefit of what only a loving father can provide. That's what David is asking here. Rebuke me, but not in anger. Discipline me, but not in your wrath. I want to experience discipline in a way that is different from the world. The world will get judgment. They will heap up their sins, and God will pour out his wrath on them on the final day of judgment. But he says, that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking for loving discipline that will cause me to be spared on that final day. I want to make a couple points. I'm going to really belabor this point. To me, this is a huge point when we're walking through suffering. And I want us to remember that every time we suffer, that this is an invitation for us to deal with our sin. Right? David does that. He goes to God with his sin and he says, God, I want this to be beneficial, not destructive. Every time we suffer, it's an invitation. Look inside of you. Take a look in your heart and deal with it. It is clear, the Bible is absolutely clear that sometimes our suffering is a direct gift from God for specific sins in our life. Every time we suffer, I think we're wise to ask is this a direct gift? Doesn't feel like a gift, but is this is a direct gift for God to root out specific sins in my life. I know that this is true. I'll give you just two examples. Uh, one, can it, uh, or Dorothy and I at night read through books called the. Uh, they arch books. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They're basically poems of different stories in the Bible. One of them is called the Braggy King of Babylon. It's the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, and Nebuchadnezzar is the braggy king. He's arrogant. He looks over all of his kingdom, and he says, literally says in Daniel 4, I think it's verse 10, he says, I have built this kingdom with my own hands. And while he's speaking, he's interrupted with a voice from heaven that tells him, you will be judged for that, for that arrogance. And before the words are out of his mouth, he, he becomes insane. He leaves the palace. He begins to crawl around, apparently on all fours, eating grass like a donkey. He stays out there. This isn't a momentary thing. He sleeps outside like a donkey. His body becomes wet with the dew of the morning because each night he's grazing. His hair becomes long like eagle's feathers, and his fingernails become long like the claws of birds. God sends insanity on him, and it seems to last a long time. Until the end of Daniel 4, I'll read what Nebuchadnezzar says. I think this is fascinating. At the end of the days, at whatever length of time God's inflicted him with insanity, Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven, and he, he says, My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him uh, who lives forever. And this is what he said, for his dominion, talking about God, is an everlasting dominion. Right? I built it. He says, I built a little Babylon. He says, but his dominion is everlasting. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, as he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. Who can stay in his hand or say to him, What have you done? He goes on. I'll stop there. I'll read the very last one, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble them. Right? Nebuchadnezzar is an example that God will send certain specific punishment in our life that is discipline designed to root out sin. Let me, let me give you another New Testament example. There's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. And the problem with the Lord's Supper, the way it's happening in the Corinthian church, is they've forgotten that the Lord's Supper is, they, they, the term we use, communion. And they've stopped communing together. He says, some of you show up and you eat so much that the other people show up and they don't have anything to eat. Like the, For you, communion is a selfish act just about you and God, and you don't care about anybody else in the body. You have forgotten that fellowship with God means fellowship with the body. It's all about you. And because of that, Paul says, some of you are weak, some of you are ill, and some of you have fallen asleep. I mean, some of you, God has taken some of you home. Because you take communion so lightly that you don't care about the body that you're eating it with. God, Paul is saying there, are, there is a specific punishment that God is doling out to his body when we don't take communion in a way that communes with each other. And so this is evidence in my mind. Both of these are evidence that sometimes our suffering, our weakness, our illness, even our death are loving acts of God saying, repent from this sin that you have been harboring for so long. Get it out of here. It is killing you. I'll kill you if you don't get it out before it kills you. Because I love you so much, I will not let you walk in sin. And so when we suffer, we must ask, is there sin in my life that I have to get rid of? Now, I think it's incredibly important for me to add to this some clarification. One is, It is though it is true that God sends suffering to chastise and discipline us, it is absolutely incorrect for us to assume that everyone's suffering is doing so because of a certain unconfessed sin in their life. And there's evidence in the Bible for that. I'll give you a, a new and an Old Testament again. Old Testament Job. God's in heaven and the devil comes by and he says, have you seen my servant Job? And what does he say about Job? He's upright, Blameless, there is no unrighteousness in him. And the devil says, Well, let me me attack him so I can sift him. God says it again a second time in that first chapter. You don't understand how good Job is. Job's suffering was not a result of his sin. It was so that God could display his glory through Job. Job's friends wrongly say, Job, you must be in sin, or God wouldn't do this. God, God condemns them for that. So we do not have any right to see someone in our body suffering and think this is evidence that their sin must be really grave. Uh, there's another place in John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples are walking and they see a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples say, well, whose sin caused this? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? From birth, maybe his parents were really bad. And Jesus says, you guys just don't get it. He wasn't born blind for his sin or his parents' sin. He was born blind so that my glory might be revealed so the, so the world could see how big and how strong I am. So it would be a sin for me to think Mary's cancer is and to, certainly to accuse Mary of having un, unconfessed sin as the cause. I would be just as wrong as Job's friends. I'd be just as foolish as Jesus' disciples to do that. It's true of any of you that are suffering. Suffering is not necessarily evidence, and I am wrong if I stand in judgment, assuming what I don't know. That said, all sin, I mean, I'm sorry, all suffering flows ultimately from the effects of sin. Every time we suffer, regardless of the cause, it is ultimately because Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit and all of us have fallen, it followed in their footsteps. This is what we've learned. You'll have to go back several months now when we started in Romans 1.18. God said, I, Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul said about God that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven Against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. When you think is being revealed, I, I tend to think, when does God's wrath happen? Well, that's the final judgment in hell. Paul says, no, no. God's wrath is being revealed right now. Right now, we are getting like a sneak peek of. We're getting a glimpse of the fact that God is pouring out His wrath already. Every time I see broken bodies broken um, families, broken relationships. Every time I see natural disasters, I know this is the outpouring of God's wrath. And Paul explains that. right? He says, some of you are, this is, this is how God's wrath is, re- is revealed. He says, some of you have lived in ungodliness, and so I'm giving you over to futility. Futility of conscious, you're not going to be even condemned in your heart by your own sin anymore. Futility of your mind, you will look at God's, world and not even be able to see him in it. Romans 8 says, not only that, he gave creation over to futility, right? That it's waiting and groaning for the redemption because for now, it is subjected to futility as it awaits its final redemption in Jesus. So every time I see a tornado rip through a town, I think creation has, is experiencing the revealing, the taste of the wrath of God. Every time we suffer from cancer or disease or anything, I'm reminded that this is just the beginning of what God has promised to impure for all who are in rebellion against him. It's an invitation. Get right now. Get right with God right now. You see a tornado and you think, get right with God right now. I'm suffering. Get right with God right now because this is just the beginning This is just the opening of the veil of the wrath that will be poured out on all humanity. Let me me try to tie this all back in. The big point, I think, in verse 1. If you are suffering, you pray. And you pray starting by doing business with God about your sin. Our suffering may be a response directly from our sin. Or it may be the effects of living in a sinful world. But whenever I suffer, I'm being invited by God. Do business with me about your sin. Talk to me about your sin. Confess it. Ask me to purge it from you. Do business with me. I want to read again from John Piper. Another of his points was that we waste our cancer if we treat sin as casually as we did before. He asks, are our besetting sins as attractive to us now as they were before we had cancer? If so, we are wasting our cancer. Cancer is designed to destroy the appetite for sin. Pride, greed, lust, hatred, unforgiveness, impatience, laziness, procrastination. All of these are the adversaries that cancer is meant to attack. Don't just think of battling against cancer. Also think of battling with cancer. He's saying, think that God has sent this suffering not just as something that I want to overcome, but something that I want to use to overcome an even deeper problem in my life. And isn't it true? I mean, haven't we all suffered in a way that made us realize what matters? Haven't we ever, have you, let me ask this. Have you ever been to a funeral of a person who died in bitterness? Their family was estranged, and you think, what a waste. Why didn't you use your suffering to remind you to fix what is broken in your life now? Why don't you use your suffering to get rid of the bitterness that has broken your family apart? Why don't you use your suffering to motivate you to apologize? to motivate you to reconcile, to motivate you to stop procrastinating, to stop being lazy in your life. We waste our suffering when it does not motivate us to do battle against the sin in our life. That's verse 1. The rest of the verses will go faster. Look at verses 2 through 5. Let me read them again. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Um, He makes, I think, about four requests here. God, first request, be gracious to me right starting into heal me uh, turn and deliver my life save me these are four requests and i believe that if there is some slight difference there that they're generally very s- similar requests he's asking god to intervene in his suffering to step in and do something about his suffering what separates these verses isn't the request i think but the grounds in which The request is made. This is an interesting thing to me. Have you ever noticed that when people pray with God, they make, in the Bible, they're often making arguments to God. They're reasoning with God about what's going on. I think this is a fascinating thing because it's not like our reason, I'll ever come up with an idea that God hasn't already thought of. Not like God. I have a really good idea here. You've never thought of this one, but let me let me just pitch it to you and see what you think. This is not. This reasoning isn't for God's benefit, but it's clear that the Bible teaches us pray this way anyway, for your benefit. I want you to pray for me by offering reasons that back up the request you're making. And so David does that here. He makes, um, really, I think three. Big reasons, right? So the first one, the, in verse 2 and 3, I think all of these are the same reason. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing, my bones are troubled, my soul is troubled. The reason here, I think David is saying, God, I need you to do something because I can't do anything. My first reason that I need God to step up is that if he doesn't, I am absolutely without hope. My body is languishing. My soul is deeply troubled. I have nothing to bring to the table. So God, I'm begging you, because if you don't step up, nothing's going to happen. The argument that David is making is, God, you're my only hope. And God honors that kind of argument. God likes that for us to humble ourselves. For us to say, God, it's you or nobody. I want you to say that when you pray to me. I want you to say that all my eggs are in your basket, God, because there's no other help anywhere else. God says, good, that's the kind of argument I want you to make to me. The second one's interesting. In verse 4, he makes another argument. Turn and deliver me for, for is the cause. Why am I arguing this? For the sake of your glory, or the sake of your steadfast love. I'm sorry, for the sake of your mercy, or the sake of your steadfast love. The second argument is, God, do this not only because I'm unable, but because this is, this is right in line with your character. I think this is a really fascinating one. Some, some people think that this is another way of David saying, I can't do it, but you can. But I think there's something else going on here. When he says for the sake of, I believe that David is saying, for the demonstration of, for the magnification of, do this for the benefit of your steadfast love, for the benefit of your uh, mercy. And you got to think, what does he mean exactly there? This is, what, this is, to me, a super encouraging idea. And I'll tell you why. If you think about what makes humans special out of all creation, that we alone are positioned to beg for God's mercy. All right, so all of creation, Psalm 19 tells us, all of creation is designed to show God's glory, to show his handiwork. And so rocks do it in some ways, mountains do it, angels do it, but only humans show his mercy. Now you would think, well, only we show his justice, but that's not true. Angels fell from heaven. They have been cast from heaven. That's why they are demons. And they are promised that they will one day experience the full weight of the wrath of God for all eternity, just like some humans will. The difference, though, is humans alone are the object of God's mercy, of his redemption. The whole world he created to display his glory. And he says, you and I specially, can do that through Begging for his mercy to be displayed in us. Joel, I think, preached on this out of Hebrews. Angels long to look into that. Angels look at that and think, what? He's merciful too? Not just merciful. What, the God who created all things is willing to step onto a cross and die for these people to show his mercy? And they think, this is mind-blowing. Angels think that's mind-blowing. David says, "God, you can save me right now. You could, you could pour out your justice and demonstrate your just, your your wrath. You can demonstrate your holiness, but recognize that I am uniquely equipped to demonstrate your mercy, because you could save someone who could not save himself, and that's an argument God seems to like." God seems to say, I'm glad you're getting my character here. That's a good reason for me to step in. Argue for my intervention based on my character. I think you're getting this now. There's a third argument. This one is, I think it's clear that this is a third argument, though uh, the way he says it is a little uh, less direct. But his third argument is verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give... um, who will give you praise? I think this third argument is saying, God, if save me so I can do what you created me to do. Save me now so I can praise you. You created me for your praise. So save me so I can do what you made me to do. I'll, I'll tell you real quick, there are people who have suggested that this means David thinks that after he dies, there's no afterlife there. And it's just clear that's not true because of many of other David's other writings. There's a sense of poetry that's going on here. David's simple point, I'll read one commentary. This is, David was saying, if he died because of his illness, he could not praise God for delivering him from it. So David reasoned that if God desired someone to stand in the sanctuary and proclaim that God delivered him, then God would have to do so. God, you made me for a purpose. I know you made me for a purpose. Save me so that I can accomplish that purpose. Deliver me so that I can do what you made me to do. God likes that argument. You made me for a reason. So help me accomplish that. I think this is, reminds me of the gospel as explained in Ephesians 2. Right, we started with admitting our weakness, our inability. Consider, uh, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the um, course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Th- this was our nature. We were without hope in this world. But God, who is rich in mercy, He saved us not on our works, but uh, by grace through faith. This is point two. And then the third, the very last here, is that we are God's workmanship. This is verse 10 of Ephesians 2. We are God's workmanship created for good works. Saying, God, I I know you made me for good works. So you have to remake me for it. You have to redeem me. You have to save me all over again. Make me new again so I can do what you made me to do. Because I cannot do it unless you do it through me. I am your work for good works. So you have to work in me to make that happen. I want to tie all three of these together. And I want to do that by reading this. my, my last big reading section. This is out of um, Desiring God. And, and the reason I want to, I feel like I have to do this for you, because this was kind of a mind-blowing chapter for me. Uh, in Desiring God, there's a chapter on prayer. And one of the central arguments is that we need to be careful when we pray not to act like we can serve God, but to beg him to serve us. And it seems strange to me at first. Well, God wants us to serve him. And, and I know that the Bible often is asking me to. And he says, it's true, but only through him having served you. He says, you have to understand that God does not need anything you can offer, and he's most glorified when you admit that the only thing I can do comes through what you can do through me. He says, beware of acting like you have something to bring to this table here. Um, And so with that in mind, he wrote this. He says, suppose you're totally paralyzed. You can do nothing for yourself but talk. And suppose a strong and reliable friend promised to live with you and do whatever you needed done. How could you glorify your friend if a stranger came to see you? Would you glorify his generosity and strength by trying to get out of bed and carry him? No. You would say, friend, please come lift me up. And would you put a pillow behind me so I can look at my guest? And would you please put my glasses on for me? And your visitor would learn from your request that you are helpless and that your friend is strong and kind. You glorify your friend by needing him and asking him for help and counting on him. It's the same is true in our prayers for God. We glorify God when we say, God, I need you to show up. John Piper goes on to describe, explain this using John uh, chapter 15. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'll skip that and move on to the the next paragraph. He goes on to the implications there, uh, and he says, so what does that mean that we can do to glorify God? He says, well, he answers that for us in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We glorify God by asking him, by praying. We ask God to do for us through Christ what we can't do for ourselves, which is to bear fruit. Verse 8 gives a result. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So how was God glorified in prayer? Prayer is the open admission that without Christ, we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as the needy and exalts God as the wealthy. That's how David prayed. He started with, I'm a wretched sinner that deserves your wrath and anger. And I'm asking you not to pour it out of me, but to discipline me, to make me new. <clears throat> he says, "I second point, I have nothing to offer. My body is wasting away. My bones are weak. My soul is, is, is distraught and distressed. I have nothing to bring to the table. But your character is a character of mercy. So I'm asking you to make me into what I can never make myself. Make me into somebody who can bear fruit. That's your purpose for me, but it cannot happen unless you do it in me. That's David's prayer. That's what I want us to pray. Let me really quickly walk through the next few verses. This first five verses are how to pray when you're suffering. The next verse is, what does David experience? And you'll see that it starts, I think, before the prayer. David starts with his experience. His experience is that he is weary from moaning. Every night he is flooding his bed with tears. His experience was that he was drenching his couch with weeping. His eyes were wasting away because of grief. And it was gro- his eyes were growing weak because of all of his foes. You wonder what his foes were. Remember we said we didn't get a lot of context here. I think his foes could have been um, people, enemies, right? Like Absalom was in in three. But just as well, his foes here could be the spiritual and physical attacks. The weakness of his body is a foe, right? The the, the weakness of his soul, this dried up feeling of, God, how long before I hear from you? This dryness of soul is an enemy that he wants to have vanquished. And let me just ask you, has, has that been your experience? Have you ever been there? I just again want to remind you that even if you say, I don't know that I have been, we're in a church of people that are there right now. And so if you can't pray for yourself this way, will you at least commit to praying for our family this way? The cool thing is, verse 8. I think that he pray. he's feeling this way, and he prays the way we already studied. And then look what happens in verse 8. There's, there's a change. His confidence boosts. And he looks at his foes, and he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. He speaks commandingly, foes, whether it be evildoer people or sickness or the thing, get out of here. You have no more control here. Why is that? For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. His experience has changed because he spoke with God, and God has heard him. He's not asking how long anymore. I spent some time in prayer, and God has comforted my soul. God has shown up through the prayers of David. What's fascinating is verse 10. Once God showed up and talked to him, he said, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is fascinating because the word shall means in the future. right? This this means that David did not pray, immediately have the suffering gone, and that's why he was rejoicing. He prayed and he heard from God. He knew God heard from him, and that gave him the confidence to say, this is but light and momentary affliction compared to the surpassing weight of glory that God has promised to all of his children. His experience changed not because the suffering stopped, but because he heard from his God. And that's why he says, these foes, they're going to be put away. They're going to be embarrassed that they even attacked a child of God. I have confidence now. His demeanor is completely different because he prayed, because God heard those prayers. So this is what I want us to do tonight uh, as a response. And and music team, if you want to come up and get ready, but let me introduce what I think we need to do. I think what we need to do is pray, right? It's the clear command of this psalm. Every time we read the Bible, we know we have to respond. Otherwise, James says, you're like a man that looks in the mirror and you leave and you forgot what you look like. That's foolishness. This verse is commanding us to pray. So what I want us to do as a body is to first just identify somebody in our body that you know is suffering. And it may be yourself. It may be Mary. It may be Robert. It it may be anyone in this body. You know they're suffering. And will you commit tonight, right now, not only now, but for a long time in the future, but at least right now can we pray together and pray four things, the same four things we saw here. First off, say, God, will you use this suffering to get rid of sin, to increase holiness and righteousness in their life? Even if it's a person that you don't see the sin there, somebody as sweet and kind as Mary. I've never seen Mary sin, but the Bible says she does, and she has. So I'm going to ask, God, don't waste this. Make this be loving correction, loving discipline in her life. Two, I'm going to ask that God uh, will show us our own inability outside of him. Doctors are unable too. How many doctors have you seen? You get passed around and you say, God, I, if without your intervention, I have no hope. Can we ask God to use our suffering in this church to show us that he is our only hope? Will you ask God for the suffering people in our body or yourself to say, God, show me your character? Will you use me to, for the sake of your mercy so that the world can look around and see? Bridget, I used you as an example this morning, how for a long time you have suffered, and I said, that we have prayed that God would use your suffering to bring your family to church. Last week I was here, and your whole row was filled up, wasn't it? That's what I want to see. God, will you glorify your character through the suffering that Bridget is enduring? Will you make this an example to the world what you're really like? And then I'm asking, we're going to ask God, will you sustain us so that we can do what you made us to do?